0: Well, this morning's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. That'll be on the screen behind me, but if you want a moment to look that up, it's uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 1, pretty near to the end of your Bibles. God's word we read. And as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God, who gives his Holy Spirit. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. So, excuse me, this is our fourth Sunday where we are looking at the seven what are called contrary virtues, the traditional qualities that, that centuries ago were identified as the right counters to what are called the seven deadly sins. So far we looked at humility, which counters pride, kindness as opposed to envy, and temperance as the answer to gluttony. And this is my last sermon before I start vacation in August, so Erica will be finishing off the series. And I thought that the right thing to do was probably to take this pairing today on for myself and not stick Erica with it, because today it's chastity as the contrary virtue to the deadly sin of lust. And that may not be the most comfortable message of all to listen to, but it is a wildly relevant and important concept today. Chastity and lust influence how human beings relate to each other and whether, whether people find their way to live healthy and fulfilled lives. Now, I'm not going to use any, like, explicit language or vivid imagery in this, but parents should know that since we're talking about lust, sex will be mentioned in this message, and if that impacts where you want to have your kids during the message, then uh, that's that's your note for that. And there may be others that would wonder, how relevant is this subject to my age and stage of life? And I think that when we explore the aspects of this in our inner lives and attitudes, you'll see that there are things there for your spiritual growth. But I think it's also important to help us grow our understanding in order to be able to speak into the lives of others so that we might be able to be a blessing to those in our families, in our circle of friendships, those that we might have some positive influence over. So let's let's dig into this. And so... I'm going to talk a little bit about what the deadly sin of lust is first. And I'm going to use the main way that we use that word, which is to describe unrestrained sexual desire. And lust is a very stealthy sin. It's a sneaky one because mostly it happens in our minds and in our hearts. Uh, It can lead, of course, to inappropriate behavior, but it often begins with just a gaze. We observe, observe beauty. And we desire it and we maybe then obsess over it or even fantasize about possessing it. And there is nothing wrong with noticing beauty. But what lust does is it devours beauty instead of honoring it. And today's world provides, of course, nonstop temptation in this area. So much advertising is so suggestive. So much of our media, so much music, TV shows and movies, all of this. But it's hardly even worth mentioning any of that anymore when we look at what the impact of pornography is in our world. Because it's, this is just so instructive to this topic because it is the perfect lust generator. That is all it does, that it's all it's for. Uh, pornography encourages and feeds lust. And feed is really the right word because it, it doesn't satisfy or relieve it, it only causes it to grow. And it might, it might even be hard for some people to appreciate how much things have changed from the time that Somebody had to go through a beaded curtain into a sketchy room at a video store and show an ID to get their hands on an, an X-rated movie. Today, the internet has made every imaginable type of content available instantly to anyone with any kind of online device. There is no barrier. There is no anything uh, guarding that at this point. And so in, in Canada and in the United States today, you've got about 90% of men who've had a history with pornography. Some of them were unwillingly exposed to it as early as age 12. In the United States alone, porn sites are accessed on the internet more than 100 million times a month. And so in the next 10 or 15 years, we're going to learn so much more about how much that has distorted the development of millions of young men and women. But one of the results is this thing called a pornographic style of relating, and that's behavioral changes brought on by people who are taught by porn taught to control other people, taught to objectify others, taught to hunger for instant gratification, taught to retreat into a fantasy world instead of dealing with hard truth. These run counter to Christian love and to maturity. They undermine and destroy marriages and relationships. They contribute to evil like uh, human trafficking for sexual purposes too in our world. This is the fruit of lust. Jesus set the bar very high when it comes to this. In a teaching that we hope he exaggerated at least a little bit for effect, Jesus said that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into fire. All right, so the contrary virtue to lust is chastity. And chastity is a word that doesn't appear even once in the entire Bible, but what it does is it connects to a concept in the Bible, which is purity. And on the surface, chastity is about controlling our minds and our bodies to refrain from sexual sin. And there's never been real dispute through Christian history that what the Bible tells us is right and best is to abstain from sex until marriage and remain faithful in marriage. The church has long understood this as a wise command that prevents physical and emotional and spiritual pitfalls, which allows mutual enjoyment of sex in a secure relationship, which creates the best environment for children to be born into uh, in a place that's supportive and secure. And all of that is quite true, I believe. But it's also not complete. Uh, This teaching, in some ways, what I got when I was a youth growing up, I guess, in church was basically the teaching that says, well, here are the rules. Make sure you're a virgin on your wedding day, and then everything's great. And if you're not, you are damaged goods, essentially. And that was a a poor teaching, one that placed too great a burden on some young Christians who did want to please God, but might miss the mark at some point. We need a deeper understanding of chastity that recognizes that it it is not just abstinence. It's not just following the right rules. It begins with how we see ourselves and others. An author named Matt Frad wrote this, and I think it helps a lot. He says, "...the virtue of chastity calls us as sexual beings to revere ourselves as creatures made in the image of God and made to honor God through our actions." through how we do or don't engage in sex. And it calls us to revere other persons for the sake of the other person's good and their ultimate happiness. When people will the good for one another in this way, they do not act solely on passing desires and feelings, but rather on their commitment to help the other person attain the good and honor God. And so why does picking someone up at a bar or through a dating app for a one-night stand violate Christian ethics? Is it because it's against the Bible's rules? Well, yes. But on a deeper level, it's because that is a person you don't know. And therefore, you don't know what is good for them. You don't know how this experience will affect them. You, should be doing, you could be doing something very destructive physically or emotionally or relationally. You could be contributing to ruining a marriage, sending someone into a pit of depression. You don't know. And our culture today says that is fine as long as they consent to whatever you do together. Right? You don't have to care what happens to them as long as they agree to it. And that is a wickedly low bar. It violates our duty to love ourselves and the other person and seek their good. So chastity starts in our inner life, and then it changes our actions accordingly. Do we value ourselves and recognize that we are precious to God? Do we value others and want what is best for them, rather than wanting to get something from them to gratify our own desire? And so this principle is helpful, more helpful than a rule book, I think, because it applies to our thought lives, our fantasy lives, as well as our physical actions at any stage of life, whether we are married or unmarried. All right, that's a lot to already throw at you before we get to our main Bible passage for today, but we're now going to look at that passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And in it, the Apostle Paul, writing to the, uh, the Christians in Thessalonica, says, look, you're on the right track in how you're living as followers of Jesus. That's great, but there's no, <coughs> excuse me. there's no such thing as having arrived. There is more that you can do. You can learn to please God more and more. So if we ever think we're getting everything right, that we've arrived, well then, I guess I need to refer you back to the first message in this series, which was about pride, right? But here we read that, you know, we should grow more and more. And Paul wants to make something very clear in the instructions he gives, which is that he is very confident that what he's passing on is truly the will of God. This is given, he says, with the authority of Jesus Christ. He says... For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of Jesus Christ, that it is God's will that you be sanctified. See, there are times in Paul's writings where he makes it clear that actually he's giving his opinion, where he's saying, here is what I, Paul, think that you should probably do in this situation. But here he stresses that, no, this is, this is direct from God, that those who violate it will be accountable to God. It's God's will that you be sanctified. And sanctified expresses two ideas, okay? One is that we now belong to God. We are in God's service. It's an identity thing, okay? It's part of who we are as followers of Jesus. I'm sanctified. I belong to God. But the other aspect of it is that I don't just belong to any God. I belong to a God who has shown me his character and who has instructed me to live in a way that's consistent with that character, And so it's not just identity, it's also ethics. Sanctification is becoming more like the God you belong to. And this passage gives instructions on three ways to pursue sanctification, and a warning if we don't. So, number one says you should avoid sexual immorality. Number two, that you should learn to control your body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And third, that In this manner, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. And he says, Then the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God does not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So, sexual immorality in there, it comes from a word just commonly used by Jewish and uh, Christian writings, just to talk about any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Uh, So, for Jewish converts to Christianity... This was all obvious. This was all in the law. They already knew this and understood this, whether or not they did it, but they they knew these were the rules. For Christians coming out of a Gentile background, this needed to be spelled out because these things, many of these things were acceptable or even encouraged in the culture they grew up in and they were raised in. So this was a very big change of how they lived their lives. And that's where the second instruction comes in. He says, don't conform to your culture, but to God's character. Don't be like the people who don't know God and are ruled by their lust. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable. Make sure, he says, to use your body to do what is right before God and loving to others, which is chastity. And then it leads to that third instruction that no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. And there are quite a few scholarly opinions about what this means, but I take it to mean that in the realm of sexual ethics, our goal is higher than what we want or what feels good, and we should always ensure that what we do is not unfair or harmful to somebody else. And that's as true within marriage as in any other context. And this again speaks to that deeper meaning of chastity, which goes beyond specific rules and into how we revere ourselves and others. So we all know at this point that there is a desire in our Western culture to hold up sex as something that can just be a physical act, divorced from emotion or intimacy or implications, spiritual implications. And even if that were true, it would still be possible to wrong or take advantage of somebody. But it's also not true. You can't strip all that away from the physical act, and trying to do so is often damaging to everyone involved. The passage that I chose today ends with For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. You can't follow Jesus and go on living exactly as you did before he was part of your life. And so that that same word that's translated as sexual immorality here sometimes is also translated as idolatry in other places because it comes back to that choice, Do I want the real God who comes with these principles for living a holy life? Or do I want this substitute God who lets me do whatever I feel like? And that is the choice here. You can let lust call the shots and give your body over to it like the pagans who don't know God. It's an option. But it's not just breaking a little rule. It's not just being a little liberal in your interpretation. It is choosing the idol. It's rejecting God. And that idol does not want what's good for you. That idol cannot save you. So there is a wonderful abundance of grace and forgiveness for those who repent of sexual immorality. But there should be no illusion that we can live according to the Spirit while actively choosing lust over chastity. So, look, in today's culture, the church's traditional teaching on sexual ethics, they're not just unpopular, they're incomprehensible. chastity is not seen as a virtue by our world it's an old-fashioned probably unhealthy and quite possibly oppressive idea to a lot of people i read this week a fascinating book called rethinking sex a provocation and one of the big things that it highlights through all sorts of research and interviews was just how much the west keeps moving the boundaries of what's acceptable and expecting that it's going to make people happier that's going to make people more liberated uh, but in many cases, instead, it simply leads to hurt and confusion and dissatisfaction instead of freedom. The, the author, Christine Ember, writes that this is especially true for women who now have so much more freedom to do what they want, thanks to all sorts of advancements in, you know, medications and attitudes and all kinds of things in our culture. But they also are having much harder time finding what they actually value, which is a serious and committed partner. Instead, they venture out into the dating world, and boy, reading this book made me so terrified about what the dating world already is, let alone what it's going to be in like 10 or 15 years when my kids are that age. Oh my goodness. Um, but they venture into the dating world, struggling to find a man who wants to enjoy, more, do more than enjoy their body and move on. They feel pressured to do things that they don't want to do in the hopes that one of those men might actually stick around before, more than a couple days or weeks. And look, marriage is not the be-all end-all. Many marriages fall short of being the safe and loving environment they should be. The Apostle Paul urged some of his readers not to marry if they could just put all their energy into the church and keep their passion under control. Jesus never married. Our need for companionship and connection and love and acceptance is something that should be fulfillingly found in a relationship with God and the love of earthly and church families as well. But marriage is also now something that a growing number of young people in our world aren't going to experience, not because they don't want to find a partner, but because they can't in our lust-driven world. And so much like the Thessalonians, we're living in the midst of a culture that is tolerant or even encouraging of just about anything. And we're called to live very differently if we wish to please God. If we belong to Jesus and we seek to resemble him, then the path to walk is sanctification. It's God's will for us and on and the place on that path on that path the place for god's gift of human sexuality uh, to be it's to be enjoyed exclusively within the marriage relationship where it can be characterized by mutual love and mutual commitment and mutual self-sacrifice and mutual joy and there is a fine line i think in teaching on marriage and sexual ethics because as our passage tells us and many people today with bad and even traumatic experiences can attest this is vitally important stuff. It goes to the core of who we are, it affects us more deeply than many other things. If we choose to ignore it, uh, just because it's growing more foreign to our culture, we're choosing to embrace a dangerous idol. But at the same time, we have to remain gracious. Churches should be hospitals for the sick and the wounded by sexual immorality. Teaching biblical truth with compassion, but not with big, wagging fingers. Because it doesn't make sense to our world. It takes time to understand it. And I also recognize, look, for me at 38 years old, raised in the church, having dated exactly one person in my entire life, I might not have the best handle on what it looks like for younger people today. And so we need to value people's stories and walk in humility with them in this world that has changed so much, so fast. All right, so I don't know if there's a place today where church teaching and cultural expectations differ more than on this one. And in our cultural moment today, people prize liberty, right? They want to be able to do what they want, when they want, without constraint or opposition. And basically that argument has won in our culture, right? There are not many people, including those raised in the church, who want to adopt chastity, because it seems to mean missing out on experiences that other people and all of our media say, you've got to have, you've got to be having this. This is what adults do. And chastity also seems like it's gonna make finding a a partner impossible, because who wants to go on dates with you if you you aren't gonna participate in all the things that are expected in that scene? And yet this victory, of unfettered liberty over all the old rules of religion. And it's not just this religion. Every major faith has a pretty recognizable version of chastity. This is not just a Christian principle. This victory of lust over chastity isn't leading people to a place where many of them ultimately want to end up, as fulfilled people at peace with themselves, often in loving partnerships with another. And I believe the God who made us The God who loves us, the God who knows our needs, has given us wise ways to meet them. And chastity is one of these wise ways. For all of the ridicule that it suffers today, chastity is a path that doesn't ask a person to endure being sexually pressured or used. It's one that largely avoids sexual diseases and untenable pregnancies. It's a path that helps prepare people for the lasting and loving partnerships that so many people crave, but also so many find difficult to to begin and to sustain. Cultivating the virtue of chastity has a lot in common with growing according to some of the other virtues we've talked about, starting with tending our relationship with God. Worship is vital, personal prayer, getting some Bible input, whether that's devotions or books or podcasts or videos, whatever is helpful. Chastity depends on recognizing yourself and others as beloved people made in the image of God, So these spiritual acts matter. God's love is at the heart of all these virtues, chastity included. And there are also practical things that can be done to resist temptation in a lust-filled world. Recognize lust when it comes knocking. Notice the feelings that come with it and where they are coming from. Learn what triggers lust in you and what circumstances would be wise to avoid. Basically run from situations that you know will lead to a bad outcome for you. Find people who can, you can be open and honest with about your struggles so you have community and accountability. Many people bear the same load and understand. Choose a few key Bible passages that you can refer back to or you can memorize that maybe address temptation or maybe remind you of God's love for you. Maybe they just make you eager to know and follow Jesus more and set your eyes on the right things. Be mindful very mindful of how you treat others, how you value and honor other people, especially members of the opposite sex, rather than objectifying or sexualizing people. See people as people, wonderfully made and valued by our Creator. And whatever else you do, receive grace as you face and admit your sin, because chastity is not a thing you have once and then you lose forever. It is a virtue that we aspire to, which sometimes we stray from at times, and which can be regained. So let me pray for us in all of this. Loving God, Father of us all and of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for creating us as such wonderful and complex beings. You have given us longings to be deeply known and loved, and you have made a way for us to receive these things, beginning with receiving your love for us. As we walk through a world that encourages us to devour beauty instead of honoring it, help us to see other people the way that you do, as your beloved children made in your image. May we revere ourselves and others so that we can seek each other's good. Help us to grow in this virtue of chastity so that we will, it will become natural for us to love and value one another as we should. Make us uncomfortable in a world moving deeper into lust so that we can offer hope for something better. And please be with those who are confused, who are lonely, who are longing for connection but don't know how to find it. Help them to find you and your people so that they can receive the abundant life that you offer and make your people ready to embrace them. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.